Welcome to episode 199 of The Digital Life, a show about our insights into the future of design and technology. I'm your host, John Follett, and with me is founder and co-host, Dirk Niemeyer. Greetings, listeners. Our special guest on the podcast this week is Tomer Perry, Research Associate at the Center for Ethics at Harvard University. Welcome, Tomer. Pleasure to be here. We're uh, bringing Tomer on board today to discuss the weighty topic of ethics, AI, and the biases that may or may not be programmed into the systems that are going to be determining much about our lives in the future. So that's what we're, what we're going to be digging into as our topic today. So what do we mean when we're talking about bias and artificial intelligence? I'm going to cue this up by talking about two examples of, of uh, AI where there's the potential for bias. First, there's the uh, lovely automated self-driving cars that uh, we are hopeful to see on our roads sooner rather than later. We will be seeing them in the 2020s. It will be in that decade there will be self-driving cars at a prevalent volume. So coming very soon uh, in the next three to four years. And what that means is there needs to be a rule set which allows cars to drive in uh, expected and unexpected circumstances. The rules that govern um, uh, these automated cars in circumstances that are life-threatening most uh, sort of deeply apply to uh, this discussion today. So what does a car do uh, that's automated when uh, encountering uh, encountering a scenario uh, where a human life could be at stake, if that's the driver's life or a pedestrian's life, and and how does the system uh, sort of balance those uh, as, as it makes a split-second decision. So one example of where AI could be uh, uh, making some really important decisions for us, those decisions, of course, are, are left to our own judgment today. But how do we sort of bake that into the system, and, and how do we make sure that uh, we are enabling these systems to um, operate in a, uh, quote, moral fashion going forward. So, so based on that example, I, you know, I think we could start our conversation with, uh, you know, talking about what is bias in AI. Dirk? I'd like to hear, I mean, I think Tomer is more likely to have a good definition. I, I would just fling my arms around at it. So, I mean, I think what's, in, what's a good starting point to think about what's new and unique about AI, right? Because bias is part of our life, and, you know, there's a large conversation about that. So, I think what's really uh, fascinating and interesting here, if you look, for example, at recent advances in AI, like the AlphaGo software-beaten uh, Go players, is that the people who code the program don't really know what's going on you know how exactly the decision the 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 software is making decisions. So I think that's that's one of the interesting features here. So I think one of the main worries about ethics of AI is that we're not going to really know how the 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 software is going to make decisions. So for example, if you know we write a program beforehand that would tell a software to you know would have some clear criteria 
to evaluate, you know, insurance claim or something like that. And then we realize the criteria are wrong because we are biased and so our criteria is biased. We can change them. But if the software is making decisions on its own that we don't really know, then there's a worry that it will develop its own biases that are we're not privy to them. And the other part that's related is that a lot of uh, modern AI is machine learning, which is something I don't know a lot about. It's not my specialty, but from, you know, kind of the stuff that I've been reading about it, um, key component of that, and again, the AlphaGo, I think, is a really fascinating example, um, is that the software learns stuff by itself, so through repetition. So AlphaGo played millions and millions of games against itself. That's how it, it developed the skills that it developed. And when it played, it made moves that no human player has ever thought were good moves. Yeah. And, and also, the design, definitely the designers of the software couldn't anticipate that yeah. move or being a good move. Yeah. So I think that's kind of the distinct worry about AI, that it's going to bring us things that we don't even know, and it's going to come to them through a process of learning that maybe mirrors the way we learn, maybe it doesn't, but it's very, it's really hard for us to anticipate. So let's bracket that for a little bit, and then let's talk about bias. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think there are two kinds of bias we might be worried about in general. Uh, and specifically with the AI. One of them is, as I mentioned, kind of our conscious biases, right? So there are things that um, opinions differ regarding. Uh, so for example, affirmative action, right? Is affirmative action justified and to what extent and who counts for affirmative action and in what context is a subject on which there is disagreement. And so calling, it, calling something like this bias is controversial mm -hmm. in our political world. But you, what it, we also can say, looking at history, that certain opinions that used to be prevalent are now widely accepted as biased or prejudiced. So there's a, one form of bias is bias that we retrospectively recognize as bias. Uh, and even when we do, when we say we, I mean maybe the vast majority in a certain society in a certain time, often there are still on the margin some people who reject it. So for example... Uh, most people today in the United States would accept as bias the idea that women aren't as capable as men. Um, I'm saying it very generally so that it would be more widely accepted. As soon as you narrow it down, some people are going to reject it. I'm sure there's still in the margin some people reject it, but for the most part, consciously, this is something that has been disavowed. So we've legislated laws back in the 50s that doesn't that doesn't that don't allow discrimination on the basis of gender. So it is illegal to discriminate merely on the basis of gender, right? So if mm -hmm. you can prove that you know a woman was fired because of that or was you know or denied promotion or something like that, that's a that's an offense, right? So that's our consciousness biases, and we realize them like respectively, and they're controversial. We can disagree on them, and we can differ. The other kind of bias that we should be worried about with AI and not with AI is what. Um, people, uh, researchers discuss as implicit bias. So these are things that we're not aware of them in the moment, but we make decisions and built into those decisions are all sorts of preferences that we actually wouldn't necessarily even endorse if we were to reflect on them. Uh, sometimes we do rationalize them, like kind of in hindsight, people tend to come up with stories. Um, but sometimes we, we deny that they exist or we don't think that they exist. So I might think that I don't have any uh, different evaluation for men or for women, but researchers show that if you if you have a, a man's name or a woman's name on a CV with similar credentials, it's treated differently, right? And there's the famous you know orchestra experiment where where they were evaluating the playing of 
musicians behind a curtain, right? That they, they couldn't see that they were women. Uh, people, you know, they've accepted more women into orchestras. So, so this is the kind of implicit bias. So th those are biases that we have regardless of AI. So the, the worries is that AI could uh, import both of these kinds of biases. So it imports conscious biases when we write code into the software. That's usually less worrisome. In this, it's, it's not less worrisome for the people who are by, that it's prejudiced against, but it's less worrisome in the long run because hopefully if we identify this kind of bias or we come to change our opinion on it, we can rewrite the code. But with these sophisticated machine learning softwares, they can sometimes learn our biases in ways that we have not intended. That's true. So, so I, there's this really interesting paper that looked at Google searches or, or other, you know, search engines, um, and they tend to to do all sorts of linguistic. There's all sorts of linguistic algorithms that group words together, right? You can't write, you know, you can feed the dictionary, but you you so they they build semantic clouds, and it's been found that. You know, if you search an employment as a man or a woman, it could give you a different result. So because it identifies secretary with woman and it identifies, you know, engineer with men. So women yeah. engineers are already like facing all sorts of barriers. They, they have, there's all this like hidden again. And this is the problem, right? The people who wrote this software never intended it. Yeah. Nobody had any yeah. idea this is happening. But the algorithm found that most people, when they talk about secretary, they're talking about women. And they thought, oh. It's just like mother. It's a word that has a feminine uh, attribute. So this is one way to which it's importing our biases. And of course, you know, the same is true about implicit biases. We might not even know. We might think we're designing something fairly innocuous, like a health, you know, a healthcare evaluation app, and or some kind of algorithm that's supposed to evaluate the risks people have. And when we're doing it, the software learns from us what we want, but what we want is already colored in this way that we ourselves would reject. Yeah. So we're transferring the bias into the computer the same way we might transfer bias into our children. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess you maybe you, you give birth to software, so maybe you feel that way. Uh, I think it's the it's very in some ways, so the kind of the people who are more sci-fi-ish about AI would would like that idea because they think that the software learns it the way human beings learn. Of course, it's hugely controversial. These, there's, it's hotly debated whether or not these kinds of AI uh, learn in any way similar to the way human beings learn. We certainly so, aren't there yet. We're not, we're not yeah. there yet, but do they show the same germs of thinking? So some people... As far as you know, kind of my knowledge goes, think that these kind of programs do something that looks akin to human thinking in a very fundamental way. Uh, and if they are, it definitely seems like they are learning from us in the same way that not just our children, but we teach our peers and you know, uh, social and cultural transmission. Yeah. But in some ways, it, there's also some differences. So it's different than than your kid in the sense that we don't understand at all what goes on there. I mean, not that we necessarily understand other people or the way the, the mind works with the brain. Um, and it's predictable in certain ways that we aren't able to predict, right? So there is some kind of internal logic to it. Yeah. And the danger, I think part, another part of it is, the danger of it is that these systems tend to process huge amounts of data that no person could have the ability to, to you know, so we, we use them and employ them in 
healthcare and the dry, you know, because they can process all these different scenarios. But then we're one of the problem, one of the risks is that we're taking our biases and we're making them much more powerful and we're applying now across a huge set of cases yeah. where beforehand people's biases might counter each other, right? So you think yeah. judges are somewhat biases, but some of them are biased this way, some of them are biased that way, and there's experimentation and diversity. The but system then, has some degree of limit or self-regulation. Right, but then we're, if, we, if we put it all in a computer and we let computer make decisions instead of judges, we're going to universalize one kind of bias. Yeah, the Skynet. Uh. So I, I think one of the things that I'm hearing from, uh, from both of you is that there's this potential for the software to amplify uh, the in, you know the inherent biases that we're uh, inputting into the system, whether it comes from examining a large data set uh, and that amplifies it, or just the fact that there is uh, only a certain number of inputs that are being evaluated. So Dirk, you talked about whether or not software is really like our children. Uh, our children have you know, unless we're keeping them, you know, solely, you know, in, in, in a very limited environment where inputs are only what we're giving them, what we're feeding to them. Children have so many other types of input uh, that, that they would see either from society, from television, from their environment, generally speaking. Whereas AI, unless it's highly, you know, sophisticated beyond what we are uh, currently uh, have in front of us, uh, we are controlling all of the inputs that are going in, um, and and so there is no opportunity for diversity of input that we would have, you know, via human being. So it's interesting that the uh, you know our inability to recognize how pattern amplification can sort of take hold, you know, is that that's one potential source of of bias in the system. Tomer, what are what are some other uh, potential sources, or how do you see corrective measures being being introduced? Um, you know, once once we've got these sort of imperfect systems that are um, you know sort of capable of learning, but are going in directions that we either don't want them to, or we want to you know steer them in in, in another direction. Right. Yeah. Um, so. I think that's a great point. I think one, one uh, preliminary note that is worth mentioning is that the AI, artificial intelligence, right, if, uh, that we're talking about is what people talk about as specialized AI, right? So uh, there's actually a distinction in the literature and, you know, people talk about it between general AI, which is this kind of science fiction-esque supercomputer that can do anything. That's the equivalent of the human mind in AI. And there's specialized AI. So I mentioned AlphaGo, which is a software that plays Go, it doesn't do anything else. So it's not like it's super smart, except it's not going to do, it's not going to handle laundry or anything. It's like specialized for the field of AI. Yeah, in the field, narrow AI is, right. is the term typically used. And, and a lot of leading people in AI say that all currently functioning AI qualifies as narrow AI. Right, exactly. And and obviously there's some people who, who plan for and think that a general AI is... Imminent, but most people, I think, think it's actually kind of pretty far away, or we have no grasp on what that would look like and when, if at all, it will come. You yeah. know, there's a there's the people, uh, you know, the effective altruism people and uh, Nick Ballstrom and others who think that the extreme possibility of general AI turning evil is 
should be our prime concern. But most people in this field actually think we should think we we should be more concerned about uh, kind of the the narrow AI or specialized AI because that kind of AI already exists and is developing. So you mentioned cars and we mentioned healthcare and uh, uh, education, housing. Law, so you know, uh, arbitration, all these things. There are already algorithms that apply all sorts of things, and so they raise all these moral and 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 political questions, yeah. questions of justice. So we need to address them. So I think so. One one way of answering is that as a specialized problem, the answer also needs to come from sp- from specialized look at the problems. So so we would have to look at each one of these issues. There's the mm. technical component of it where. This, the people who write these programs are also the people who are going to have to rewrite them in better ways. So I mentioned the linguistic research uh, the, about uh, search engines. I mean, you can't even analyze this unless you have the skills to begin with to to see that there's an issue there, right? So it's it's only those kind of people. So where will the corrective measure come from in certain ways? I think there's a responsibility on the engineers and the tech people working on it that they need to recognize and sometimes they don't really recognize that they have this responsibility at the same time the normative evaluation of what's what's problematic and what's not is not the sole responsibility of these pe- of the tech people or the people with the engineering skills but it should be part of a bigger conversation so we need to have a bigger conversation about these things we need to have broader understanding so people who aren't uh, tech people like myself need to educate themselves about what's going on there and also try to um, create a conversation where the va- the value part of it is is involved, and I think you know I spent a little bit of time at Stanford and right by Silicon Valley. There's often kind of this disconnect between the humanity side of campus in Stanford and all the people who are doing tech, and I think that's incredibly unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, and and so one thing we need to do is to create conversations across these divides, and I think there's a special responsibility for the specialists. And then there's a there's a, a more communal responsibility to understand what's going on there and push back on certain values that might be specific you know specific coincidentally to the people who are doing tech. Some other things that are you know uh, important. Um, so one of our fac- affiliate faculty at Harvard, the Kennedy School, Arkun Fung, um, has talked about how he thinks uh, we're missing the equivalent of a journalistic ethic among these kinds of engineers that maybe has uh, affinity to the early days of the internet, where in addition to the enthusiasm about the technology and its potential, there was also a very kind of uh, committed ethic. Another example is kind of the nuclear physicists and people working on nuclear bomb and their kind of struggle to understand what is their moral responsibility vis-a-vis their creating new technology. So one thing that I think is also interesting is kind of um, ha- having a like a frank conversation between and among people who are also on the producing side of it. What is the more responsibility that comes with developing these kinds of AI and monitoring them. And I think one of the way in which corporate structure and kind of economic incentives operate is that they often kind of insulate people working on these projects from uh, even want, even thinking about it in moral terms, because that's not where the, the corporate incentive and that's not where. Yeah. And of course, a lot of these people are like care about moral issues, and but, but the structure of the companies often don't really give room to have this kind of discussion and recognize this responsibility. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. 
Yeah, I think there's there's a ongoing question then, um, or at least for me, um, on on how we develop a set of you know, for lack of a better term, you know, uh, ground rules. Like, what are the uh, sort of the governing principles that uh, you know could help shape uh, decisions, whether they're about how uh, you know decisions get made with, within an algorithm, or even uh, you know whether uh, specific algorithms should be pursued or how they get applied. If there is a uh, sort of chasm or gap between technology and and the humanities, which, you know, I find kind of surprising considering that um, technology at least uh, purports to have this collaborative slash uh, uh, sort of uh, egalitarian uh, viewpoint where you have cross-pollination between uh, technical areas. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that there isn't already a uh, an effort underway to introduce uh, you know the the information and learning from the humanities side into um, you know some some uh, technological uh, program, whether it whether it be at the the university level or or even uh, at the you know the the level of trade group, right? Um, so so if we if we acknowledge that this conversation needs to happen, and we acknowledge that. There needs to be a, a sort of broader understanding of, of morals and ethics. What, what are what are the uh, what are the ways in, in in which that can be pursued? Is it is it is it policy driven? Is it a uh, you know sort of a free market ethos? We'll just see how well these self driving cars do, and if they get you know if they start uh, mowing down people, then we'll decide at that point that okay, that's that's bad. You know, no one's going to buy the cars anymore, so that's the imperative. Like, what what are the trigger points for having a deeper and more substantive conversation about uh, ethics and AI, and how soon does that need to happen? So, somewhat of a question to, I don't know, a, a historian of the future or something, I don't know, what, what will be <laughs> the trigger events? Uh, there's already, so ethicists have already started talking about this. So, you know, people, you know, that's, in the, Kind of my perspective about what political theory and ethics contributes to society is partly that we have the time and space and opportunity to already start thinking about it. So the conversation is not still super widespread because those things are not still in a lot of people's consciousness. So yeah. people who work day in, day out in their jobs and do a bunch of other stuff that has nothing to do with AI don't have the time, you know, you know, and dealing with all the stuff that they have to do. They don't have the time to think about this. But that's what... So there's already people... Working on it, there's already, like, I think the conversation already started. Um, once it becomes more of an issue of policy, and it has started slightly being that, I think you'll see more widespread issues. So I think, again, I'm not a, a, a prophet. Your prophecy yeah. has been obviously given to fools. But um, <laughs> but being a, wearing the hat of a prophetic fool for a second, I would say that uh, I think it's very likely that there will be, you know, some kind of incident with self-driving car that will trigger like more of a widespread conversation. I mean, this is often how things happen that way. And then a bunch of people will say, we've been telling you about this for a long, long while. Yeah. Um, and until that happens, it's probably the case that whoever is writing the software is going to have a pretty much a free hand to do whatever they want. 
And I think that, I mean, that's kind of a worrying thing. So we'll have like ethicists talking to ethicists, coming up with all sorts of proposals and solutions and analysis. And then you have all sorts of people doing their tech thing. And by the way, I didn't want to suggest, and you know, that there's no conversation or that there are no crossovers. Uh, of course, there are. There are a lot of people who care and do that. But overall, I do think there's quite a significant chasm. And uh, uh, I felt it at Stanford. I mean, uh, the chasm between kind of the tech people and the... Uh, uh, and political theorists and ethicists, and I think you know it's also the structures in which they live you know, are very, uh, very, very different. And I think there's uh, a lot of, and this is where we might differ. You know, I think a lot of people are enthusiastic about technology. In my opinion, overestimate its potential uh, to be liberating. So there's at Stanford there's the seminar on liberation technologies, and I participated in that, and I thought they showed a lot of uh, great example of the potential of technology to be liberating. Yes. Um, but technology can also be co-opted. And if there's social and political structures that are already corrupted, and by corrupted I mean certain people are in power and are oppressing a bunch of other people, um, the new introduction of new technology can sometimes subvert this structure because it gives people who are, who are formerly outsiders an opportunity to gain a power that they didn't have before. But if the people who are in power or a new elite can take over this new technology, they can become the new elite and, yeah. and do that. I think we've seen this, uh, uh, we've seen how it's been co-opted uh, with uh, what has been called the Arab Spring and those kind of demonstrations. So these new platforms who are unfamiliar to these old school regimes and their intelligence uh, operations, they were used to coordinate act, mass action in a, in a way that uh, they weren't aware of. But over the course of several years, they have learned. And yeah. if you look at other countries that are a government that are particularly interested in preventing coordinated action of their citizens, primarily China, but also Russia and Turkey, yeah. they have learned these lessons super well. So China, there's research coming out of uh, several of our colleagues as well, uh, Gary King at Harvard with uh, Jennifer Penn at Stanford and others, uh, expose the extensive depth of uh, extensive apparatus that the Chinese government employs to use basically not just restrict internet conversation and interaction, but also use it to police. So use it to, they actually allow it to happen in a lot of places where that allows them to kind of tap into what's going on. And that's what also, you know, the Syrian government is switched doing with Facebook, etc., yeah. including the American government as well, abuses that technology. So I think technology is a double-edged sword and it's not by itself merely liberating. And I think that outlook, there's there's a certain outlook that technology by itself is liberating, I think, um, is uh, is dangerous sometimes. So how, how does business and free market intersect with ethics? And specifically, to take the, the self-driving car example, um, I know in, in ethical circles, that's sort of um, married to sort of the traditional psych 101 or ethics 101, excuse me, trolley car problem. And so for our listeners who aren't familiar with that, the... The idea with the trolley car problem is there's a trolley whizzing down the tracks. There's, say, five people on the trolley. It's out of control. It's going to crash. It can be diverted onto a different track in which it will kill one innocent pedestrian, um, or it can be taken to its fate and all of the people on the trolley car die. Uh, the problem I have with ethically marrying self-driving cars to the trolley car um, problem is one of uh, agency and one of how the market intersects. So in the trolley car problem, the riders of the trolley have chosen to ride on the trolley, which is owned by some other party. 
Right? Who knows, right? Who knows, right? But so you're already filling in the blanks in something. Well, but, but, but it's very specific. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's very specific with the self-driving car where I'm an individual who's going to buy a vehicle and that vehicle is going to have rules of how it's going to behave. I'm, I'm opting in in a certain way, right? Um, so it's, 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 to me, it's very different as a layman talking about ethics, which perhaps makes me unqualified to do so. Um, but it's a very different ethical conundrum than the classic trolley car problem. First of all, I think that's, that's actually, I'll start with the last thing. Uh, being a layman doesn't disqualify you from talking about ethics. It's actually a feature of ethics and political morality is that every citizen and every person has to be an expert in any way or has to make decisions. So mm. it's actually, uh, it's actually not very much the case that political theorists or ethicists are experts in ethics. What they are is people who have more time and inclination to explore these things in greater depth. But actually, every person has a responsibility to be moral and behave morally and come to a, a conclusion about what, what morality requires. And every citizen have a responsibility and a moral duty to understand what justice is and, and act accordingly. So I think it's actually kind of... it's That's why part of the, there's a big challenge of teaching ethics as someone also engaged in thinking about how to better teach ethics because unlike our engineering friends we we can't be experts in the same way people come with a lot of opinions they think they're moral and they have good reasons to and they have been raised to think yeah that, you know they've been raised to know certain things so they don't walk into our classrooms as they do to a math class when you tell them you don't know anything let me tell you what math is and the other way is that we can't tell them the correct answer is four Right. So we have to leave them with agency to make this kind of decision, even though sometimes we might think we know mm -hmm. what the right thing is. And we have to, you know, I can't grade somebody an F just because they think something, you know, something I think is wrong. So anyway, that's just to say about it. So uh, it's kind of triggered me with you saying you're a layman. But uh, about the so there's a lot in the trolley problem in the markets question, a lot there. So let's unpack it slightly. OK. First of all, you said. You already so when you're saying I'm, I'm buying a car, you're opting in, or so there's already a ton of assumptions there that I think need to be unpacked. Um, what about public transportation? Perhaps we'll introduce regulation about self-driving public transportation, but not about private yeah. cars. Yeah. So so all of, all of a sudden this goes out the window completely. But yeah. also public transportation in certain places is privately owned, but regulated in other places it's publicly owned. So already there's so there's a myriad possibilities here. We true, can, we, true. Right? Yeah. Um, the trolley problem uh, is designed to get at people's intuitions to articulate theory. So filling in the blanks of the trolley problem with all sorts of assumptions, you know, maybe they were, they opted in, so it's their fault, is counterproductive to what the trolley problem is trying to do, right? But it's, it's a thought experiment. So it's meant to isolate conditions they, they, what they're trying uh, to do uh, when they're asking you the trolley problem is like suppose you had the power to have five people killed and one you know and save sorry save five people and have one other person die you know nothing about these people and people are like that's weird when will that ever happen and then they, they're <laughs> filling the blanks by telling this weird trolley problem yeah. and then a bunch of people say no but if it's on tracks tracks have a tendency to go and then you're like forget <laughs> it's tracks let's assume they're on the moon and you know you give them an orange and the orange is poisonous but you know but yeah, so philosopher yeah, yeah, introduced yeah. these stories right and when they tweak it so if you know something about the trolley problem you know that there are like 
a dizzying number of variants and extensions. Um, but they're not random, right? Like experiments in a lab, what they're supposed to be doing, you're tweaking, you're supposed to be tweaking this, this story to get at something that you think is maybe distinct morally, and then there's a disagreement. So one variant of it is that there's a person that you can push over and that will block the track. Yeah. And then people say, well, you can't jump yourself because the, that person is heavier than you and he will stop the track and you won't yeah. yourself. Right. So those variants are supposed to like keep everything, you know, all the conditions the same and just change this one variable yeah. to try to get at people's intuitions about it. Right? Yeah, yeah. And so it's part of ethics as part as, as a way of articulating moral theory, but it's also part of psychoanalyze because people use it to, as you know, to gauge what people's prevalent instincts are. So ethicists don't care as a general matter what most people believe is moral. Yeah. What they care about, and that's, you know, my work as a political theorist, is to try to find the best argument, what I, as best as my intellectual capacity allows me, closest to the truth as far as I can. And the argument that I have with other theorists and ethicists is meant as a way to sharpen each other's arguments such that we'll together as a community produce the best theory there is. But psychologists are interested in what uh, people actually think and believe. And so they take moral theory like utilitarianism versus deontology and all these different, you know, goal-oriented versus rule-oriented theories. And they use these stories to test people's intuition to see under what circumstances they make decisions that seem to fit with one theory and another. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now we're getting back to the, the larger question here, <laughs> the substantive question that you asked about the intersection with, of the markets yeah. with something like self-driving car. So again here, this is really a large topic. I'll, I'll plug the Center for Ethics at Harvard here one last time. Starting next year and for a period of two, year, our the, two years, our theme will be political economy and justice. So we're going to actually look at a bunch of different questions that uh, relate to the issues of where markets intersect with all sorts of issues and the limits of markets and the place of markets. And so we'll have a series of public lectures and other events nice. on this very question. Nice. Um, so I, I say that by way of saying, depending on where you stand on kind of general matters about the role of market in society and in a just society uh, and in the international context, which is different a little bit than maybe the domestic context, et cetera, et cetera you'll have a different answer yeah. as to how that intersects with the question of AI. So for example, some people are believe that markets are not just permissible, but kind of required. They're, they're freedom advancing. And if markets are advancing important liberties, for example, economic liberty is very important. So John Tomasi at Brown thinks that economic freedom is a fundamental interest people have. And markets are a social structure that allow people to um, enjoy that freedom, right? So they they enable that. So just so markets are not merely permissible or efficient or beneficial, but actually required. They're what justice requires us. You might think that um, whatever else, whatever opinion you have about the bias introduced, you might think that we sh we have to allow for com competition between different systems of AI. So we ought not regulate them in any way as on the level of the coercive level of the state, because people ought to have, be able to compete and create those different systems. Yeah. But if you are inclined to think that the main role markets play in a society, is there an efficient way of distributing goods? 
So we might think, you know, material goods that aren't particularly important. So this is an opposing view, right? The material goods that aren't particularly important to people's uh, kind of basic needs, you know, who should have this iPhone? I don't know. I don't care, right? Justice doesn't care so long as, say, this view, so long as everybody has enough to live by whatever. Um, then we say, let's institute a market that allow people to, to, you know, transfer things if they mutually agree on it and nobody's cheating each other. Yeah. And let's keep healthcare, for example, or education, a bunch of other stuff outside of the market, because these are things that people maybe are entitled to. Right. So this is an op opposing view. So the role markets play in this kind of worldview is just an efficient allocator of goods. And then they have to be regulated and restricted in the sense that they have to we have to make sure they don't encroach on things that they're not allowed to. Like so we don't want people to start buying kidneys from other people because that, you know, defeats the purpose of like this is we care about this allocation. That's a matter of justice. That's not something that. Who owns this kidney? I don't care. Let's just let people bite off of each other. So if you have that view, you might be very worried about you know a market where people buy into whatever car they want. So you, you, some people would buy into the utilitarian car, and some people would buy into the save the driver at all cost car. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, exactly. <laughs> right. So, so if you see the. Uh, Utilitarian car company, you better get it out of the way. Or, or sorry, the opposite. The opposite. If if you see the save the driver at all costs car, uh, sure. Those, and then maybe those. like cigarettes that have to be marked in some uh, in some way. Like I am an a selfish driver, you know, something like that. And then maybe people may maybe there will be some stigma attached. But then all of these mechanisms supposedly are not coercive regulation of it. We allow yeah. it and we let the market regulate. You know, yeah, maybe yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, this is uh, you know, obviously a, a topic where we could go on at, at great length, but um, I, I think uh, uh, we're going to wrap up the conversation today. And, and Tomer, uh, please come back again and join us because I'm sure we're going to have a lot more questions to ask you uh, as, as AI develops new tools for, uh, and technologies for, for our society. So thanks. Listeners, remember that while you're listening to the show, you can follow along with the things that we're mentioning here in real time. Just head over to thedigitallife.com, that's just one L in the digital life, and go to the page for this episode. We've included links to pretty much everything mentioned by everybody, so it's a rich information resource to take advantage of while you're listening, or afterward if you're trying to remember something that you liked. You can find The Digital Life on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Player FM and Google Play. And if you want to follow us outside of the show, you can follow me on Twitter at John Follett. That's J-O-N-F-O-L-L-E-T-T. And of course, the whole show is brought to you by Involution Studios, which you can check out at goinvo.com. That's G-O-I-N-V-O.com. Dirk? You can follow me on Twitter at dneemeyer. That's at D-K-N-E-M-E-Y-E-R. And thanks so much for listening. Tomer, how can our listeners get in touch with you? Uh, yeah, you can check out the Center for Ethics at ethics.harvard.edu. And I'm also on Twitter at, at perrytom6, which is P-E-R-R-Y-T-O-M and the number six. Excellent. Thank you so much. So that's it for episode 199 of The Digital Life. For Dirk Niemeyer, I'm John Follett, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>